Alright, folks, welcome on back now to another episode of some real ghostly stuff. I'm not going to lie to you, it's really ghostly. It's not fully ghostly, though. To be honest with you, it's kind of mostly ghostly, if you know what I mean. Uh, But welcome back, everybody, to the show. We get a banger of an episode. We're bringing back uh, a segment that we started, I think, was it in season one? We popped off this one with the paranormal life of the Warrens. Uh, We're returning with the paranormal life of Houdini, Mr. Harold Houdini. Um, you know, the magician, everybody, you know, everybody knows about the escape artist, you know what I mean? Uh, his, 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 his brand of entertainment was so mind blowing and mysterious that did question dark arts and magic and, uh, being one with the other side and helping each other, you know what I mean? Uh, which, you know, that's, that's. You got to, you know, there's a good question there, you know. Now, Ray, before we pop into this real quick, what's your take on, uh, what would you call this, like a household magic, like parlor game magic? Like when, you know, when people do like the card, the card tricks and, you know, things at parties and, you know, like Houdini, his magic was just a bigger, bigger, his act was a bigger extent to that stuff, you know what I mean? But instead of a living room or a parlor, it would be in a, you know, a circus tent or something like that. Well, you get people now who are doing that um, out in Vegas. You know, put a tiger in a cage, hoist it above the audience, and it disappears. Yeah. I mean, the stunts have got uh, much better. There was a show. Uh, I'm not sure whether it was Prime or who was streaming it. I think it was called Jonathan Price. Not sure on that, but basically it was about a guy who worked for a magician. Mm-hmm. He was the one that designed and set up the gag. They call it a gag, the gags. Yeah. And uh, they would occasionally show how some things were done. He would sometimes fall into a situation where as a favor to somebody, he got talked into looking into an impossible murder. And he looked at, at it from a magician's point of view. How could I set this up so it looked like, uh, so I could get away or it looks like it was impossible? Yeah. It was, a fa- it was a fascinating show. I saw a live show one time where someone uh, cut an assistant in half who was in a box, and, you know, and they wiggle their feet and hands and their head and stuff. And I was near the front, and I couldn't figure out how they did it, but I know it was a trick. I think that's a two people in the box ordeal. I could be wrong. Uh, from the way it looked, this was a small, thin box. When yeah. they put the person in, it looked like they could barely fit this one assistant in there. Um, I used to watch those, um, the masked magician shows. Did you watch those on like Fox back in the 90s? Yep. I think they might have said something about how like there's a cup, it cups out. Maybe, I don't know. And they kind of lay in where the blade would go would be maybe a couple inches above their waist. Now, the, the creepy p- part about this is like, I, I feel like I feel like each thing can kind of be broken down. Like it is a trick type deal. But um, when you see how close some of these tricks get to reality, like in the sense of like the, 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 the limited amount of space that they would have where the saw would be cutting. Like if, if, if there's a mishap, like somebody will get killed. You know what I mean? Well, this one I saw, they not only cut through it, but they pulled the box apart. So they had two parts. Yeah. 
Yeah. And wiggling the feet out one end, and then you got the head talking on the other end. So it was a good trick. Mm. Couldn't figure it out. Some of them I used to watch, and I can uh, I could figure out. Yeah. I had a, I had a favorite card trick I taught myself where I have someone pull a card, put it in a deck. I put a bunch of cards down. They'd say, you know, I'd be like, is that it? Nope. Is that it? Nope. So I'd have a second pile going and I might get about six or eight cards in that second pile. I said, okay, now wait a minute. Yeah. And I say, we'll look through these again. And we look through them again and it's not there. And the whole time I'm like, oh, well, you know, I think I blew it, yada, yada, and stuff like that, which is a, the distraction. And I say, okay, listen, I'll have you finish the trick. Touch the card in the top of that stack you look through twice. They touch it. I'd say, turn it over. They turn it over. It'd be their card. Mm. And they'd be like, oh, wow, how'd you do it? How'd you do it? Well, that took a lot of practice, but yeah, that was a, that, that was a gag. That, that was a magic. That was a trick. It's like a science to it, right? A cutting cards type deal. There's a science to it, and I think that the actual tricks that Houdini did, uh, they're illusions. Right. It was, a, it was a trick. There's a science. There's a way of pulling it off and hiding the switch you're making uh, to make something look empty or something move. Yeah, there's all of that. And to me, the fun is trying to figure it out. Mm-hmm. You know, how could they have done that? And that, that's, that's what's the fun part for me. Yeah, Mr. Houdini's not going to like mostly ghostly anymore because we're going to be diving a little bit into how he pulled off some of his uh, most uh, most favored and memorable illusions. Have you you seen Lord of Illusions on a side note, Ray? Uh, That came out quite a while back. Yeah, in the mid-90s. Yeah, I saw that. With Clive Barker, the master of uh, ceremonies. He did it. Fantastic. Starring Scott Bakula and uh, the gentleman from Seinfeld, who I think departed a couple years back in his own hands. But let's talk about a man that could, couldn't even depart with his own hands because he couldn't use them because they were always tied down. You know what I mean? And that man is Mr. Harold Houdini. Now, to get a little brief description... You know, it, what, no prison can hold me. No hand or leg irons or steel locks can shackle me. No ropes or chains can keep me from my freedom. Uh, I support that. That that looks like that's a very universal statement that could stand for a lot of things. You know, he was a man of the independent people. You know. Uh, Houdini, you know what I mean? The first thing he ever did was escape from... Sad times, the good times, my friend, which is one of the best illusions of all time. Born Eric Weiss on April 6th, 1874, Houdini's family immigrated from Budapest, Hungary to Appleton, Wisconsin, Woo! just days after his birth of March 24th, 1874, uh, seeking better fortune. That's where they want. Everybody wants better fortune, you know. The family moved to New York City uh, 13 years later. So this dude was like an army brat. He was all over the place. However, good fortune did not come easily to the struggling Weiss family. You know what I mean? As well as the lifelong fixation with magic, Houdini held a deep devotion for his mother that neared obsession. She may have been his first audience. Uh, A lot of people say that. You know what I mean? First people you're trying to impress, no doubt, are your parents. 
to ease her burdens. That's why the young Eric Weiss took to the street begging for coins. He would hide the coins in his clothing and his mop of a thick black hair. Once home, he told his mother, shake me, I'm magic. And when she did, the coins would tumble from their hiding places. That's kind of one of those tragic, heartwarming tales you hear about dark times and depression era stuff where they kind of find a little positive, little fun, have a little fun with the fact that they're doing so bad. Like it'd be a perfect opening scene to the Houdini movie. You know what I mean? To show that even though the, they both come from this place, it's horrifying. Um, they can still be positive. You know what I mean? Which is a good, it's a, it's a heartwarming tale. You know what I mean? Um, at age 17, while working uh, in a necktie cutting factory, Eric developed an interest in locks and lock picking. He probably wanted to make more money. And he's like, let's rob some locks. Let's get some banks going, some houses. Uh, a hobby turned vocation that would transform the young man's life. After reading the memoirs of Robert Houdini, Weiss was so impressed with Jean-Robert Houdini, another illusionist, who was the premier magician of that time, that he quit his job and joined the circus. Now, at this point, I guess, yeah, joining the circus would be your way, your, your first step in the direction of becoming a magician. Now, after a stint in build as Eric, the Prince of the Air, the young Eric Weiss changed his stage name to Harry, an Americanized version of Eric Houdini in tribute to his idol. Um, there was also another um, another magician that he, he uh, attributed his name to that we'll circle back around to because the note isn't in front of me right now. But uh, after, uh, ironically, after Houdini became famous in his own right, he wrote a book that exposed uh, Robert Houdini's secrets in the unmasking of Robert Houdini. Houdini actually concluded that his one-time idol was a fraud. Now, that's kind of a crazy thing to do. I wonder what the beef is there where he came out against them, which is uh, pretty horrifying. You know what I mean? What's your take on that? Well, probably the person he uh, idolized maybe stepped over the line, went into areas where uh, he, Harry thought that uh, he shouldn't have gone into, made claims he shouldn't have made, so he decided to bust them. Yeah, that's kind of, yeah, I wonder if it was a, it could have, that's more of a, a, an honorable reason. Do you think there could have been some, some bitterness or maybe some jealousy floating around? Maybe you never know. Could, could have been. We, sometimes we, when we're talking about alien life as well, sometimes we talk about, you know, they're not always every, all our heroes and such aren't, aren't always just good because they're uh, known to be in the media as good folks. Now, the thing I want to comment on is the other illusionist name was Harry Keller. Um, and he was another illusionist that influenced Houdini. And uh, he did that, that, that uh, John Eugene Robert Houdin. Houdin was the, guy, was the guy's last name that he ratted out, like turned on. Uh, and they added the I at the end for Houdini because adding the I back in the den meant to be like a very similar to type deal. Well, you also get the... Uh Outside of Harry Houdini, you also get in life. A lot of people, they just put this unbelievable faith in somebody and they just about worship them. And when they do something that crushes that or that breaks that faith, yeah, they're hurt. So they turn around and attack that person. It's true. I mean, 
his has gone deeper. I mean, it's like one of the don't meet your idols type deal. It goes it goes deeper than just, you know, chat talking on the old uh, magic circuit where you're saying this dude's garbage. It's about to go and write a book defacing the whole dude, you know what I mean? There might, there's something personal going on, I think, with that. Oh, yeah. And this is coming up, and this is when people say the business is hard now. That's that's it's even harder back then in certain rackets like that, you know what I mean? It was cutthroat and legitimately cutthroat. Um, ironically, after Houdini became famous in his own right, he wrote a book that exposed uh, that dude's secrets, like we said, the unmasking of Robert Houdini. Very crazy as a fraud. Using that name today, uh, he defines the escape artist. Harry Houdini combined his lockpicking skills with talents for illusion, manipulation, and self-promotion, finally escaping the bonds of poverty. So, I mean, he found, he built, you know, he came from nothing, which I always love the underdog story of a dude who comes from, or a dude that comes from absolutely nothing. And they make their way to the top of the pile. Um, fascinating, you know, he was the king of cards as well. So he, he could pick locks, you know what I mean? Um, the illusionist, he was, he was the man, you know, fascinated with the stage magic of Jean Robert Houdin and other famous magicians of his time. Houdini developed his own act, billing himself as the king of cards. Uh, he performed handkerchief and card tricks, adding a new twist to some of the most popular tricks of the day. Now, I know in the comedy world, a lot of comedy comedians start out other doing other people's stuff on stage to get a vibe for it and to be able to see how things work with an audience. And then they kind of go uh, and write, start writing their own material. Not all of them, but some of them do take from others. So it's quite depending on how much of a fanboy he was. And it looks like he, from the get go, from a child, he was uh, he was idolizing this dude. So I think something foul will happen between the two of them. Maybe, you know, it could very easily be the fact that you got this kid on the come up and you're on your come down, if you will. And he wants all to know all your secrets and everything. And you're kind of like you're looking at he's looking at it like, you know, Houdini's looking at it like I'm going to be great and I'm going to carry on magic where this other dude's probably like looking at him. You know, I'm going to be great. I'm going to be better than you. Help me help me help you put you in a coffin, put your career in a coffin sooner type deal. And he's probably like, nah, I'm not going to help you help me put my career in a coffin for me. No, no thank you, sir. No, thank you. So it very well could have been something like that, you know. Yet, although Houdini's manipulations netted him to uh, a spot at the Chicago Columbian Exposition in 1893, he never experienced true success as a stage musician. During the 19th, late 19th and early 20th centuries, most popular magicians were tall, slender individuals that sported curly mustaches and performed while clad in long-tailed tuxedos. Houdini's five-foot, two-inch frame was slightly bowed with bowed legs and a muscular upper body uh, deviated from public expectations, especially since he would, at the beginning of each show, rip the sleeves from his tuxedos in, near in a parody of Nothing Up My Sleeves, performing bare arms throughout the remainder of his show. That's kind of cool. I can... Um, that's intense, I feel like, for the moment. That's rock and roll stuff. You rip that off, you get the crowd go, oh, this dude's, he, he don't care. He don't care. He probably had all the, all the, the groupie girls at the front of the stage and the groupie boys at the front of the stage screaming and waving their arms and throwing their underwear up there. You know what I mean? But, oh, yeah. And then, you know, 
Houdini toured with the New Hampshire Burlesque Troupe. That's up by us. That's cool. And a Kansas Medicine Show. Now, is that Dr. Hook and the Medicine Show? Because, boy, I would follow them to the end of the earth. What a band. Um, working with a small uh, tent circus in Pennsylvania, in addition to the Magic Act. The Young Illusionist also preferred uh, as a singing clown, performed as a singing clown, and a caged wild man. Yeah, I mean, it's paying dues, man. You're out there doing it. You're trying to make a living out on the road, so to speak. Um, by, the, by the time he was 20, Houdini and Wilmelmia Beatrice Ranner, better known as Bess, married and partnered on stage as Mysterious Harry and Le Petite Bessie. When magic and escape tricks fell flat, the couple finished their act with comedy, stealing their jokes from magazines. Uh, their early acts also revealed the couple's interest in the paranormal pop culture of the era. Best performed as a mind reader, taking cues from Harry through the code no- of numbers and letters. Interesting. Yeah, you know, those mind readers are an interesting thing because there's, so there, there, there's so many, like, kind of, kind of, you know, uh, not real ones caught up in the mix that it kind of puts a burden on the, the ones that get the feel. Um, and so right there, just said even that right there, they were performing a trick, you know, they were doing through num through numbers and the code and letters is how they could work their way around, which is cool. It's, it's, it's interesting. It's very interesting how they work the audience. In 1895, Houdini thought up the idea that led to his ultimate fame. Instead of escaping from his own handcuffs, he dared local police to handcuff him with theirs. The free publicity generated from his successful escape skyrocketed Houdini's popularity and provided the young couple with the opportunities to tour both the United States and the world. You know, having the having the, the, the partner there to do comedy if things go bad is quite genius because you need to go somewhere if, if it's really failing. I mean, bombing on stage has probably got to be one of the worst things in the world up there in favorite audience just not jiving with what you're doing. It's kind of scary. It's kind of an issue. In 1899, Houdini headlined the largest chain of vaudeville theaters in the United States. And in the 1900, uh, Houdini achieved world recognition after performing in London, where he demonstrated his skill in setting himself free from every type of confinement. Straight jackets, handcuffs, shackles, all impossible traps, you know, even while submerged in water or suspended in midair. He made, he, uh, made every, every escape at, uh, attempt a heart-stopping, death-defying feat by prolonging his release to a point where the audience believed that he is dead. Reminds me a lot of, uh, what's his name, David Blaine. Yeah. He'd do those, uh, those tricks in like New York, uh, New York, like right in the middle of the New York City in uh, Times Square, like in ice or whatever, and, or in water, and then he'll be all like, playing it up i mean the theatrics are huge theatrics are big it's a stage show at the end of the day it's a stage show you know um one of houdini's greatest tricks was the milk can escape wherein he would emerge from a 42 inch tall water-filled can that had been secured with six padlocks to add to the suspense he would direct the audience to hold their breath until he appeared Unfortunately for, the, uh, unfortunately for the audience, Houdini was able to free himself from the can in less than three minutes. Yeah, those, you know, those water ones are interesting because you've got to be there when he goes in. 
You know what I mean? And you're watching them. That's a very, and they, like I said, the theatrics are there. It's very, um, you know, I almost think of the way kind of society, society is now and they're kind of a little sensitive about things. I don't know if that if a dude pretending to like if drowned in the middle of Times Square would work. You know what I mean? I think that might be an issue nowadays with kids and, and all them running around, you know. But back in the day, it was excitement. You know what I mean? It was like they, I think everybody was in and on a little bit. They go, this can't be real. But wow, look at them go. You know what I mean? One of those deals. Um, at each performance, Houdini would invite local officials to examine him and his props for, for signs of trickery. His skill as a magician allowed him to misdirect the attention of his investigators as well as hide his lock picks in unlikely places, such as his callous skin in the sole of his foot or in his thick, wiry hair that had hidden coins from his mother as youth before he'd shake him out, you know. Um, Harry Houdini locked out, you know what I mean? There was only one lock that Harry Houdini was unable to pick, the lock of death. In 1913, Harry Houdini's mother, Cecilia Weiss, passed to the other side. Feverishly, Houdini hired medium after medium in an effort to contact her. All efforts were unsuccessful. Although Houdini was a- unable to unlock the secrets of the afterlife, he was, un- unable- he was able to unlock and expose the shenanery of the popular mediums. After years spent in mastering the arts of illusion and manipulation, exposing the ruses of charlatans who called themselves spiritualists was as easy to Houdini as walking through an unlocked door. So, yeah, I think that he, that kind of has more of that, you could almost say bitterness, but I don't know if it's a bitterness or, 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 or the veal coming back and you seeing the truth and being upset with that and then moving forward to kind of expose but he felt the same way with the spiritualist too, because I think he really, of course, he loved his mother to death, literally, and he wanted to communicate with her. And, you know, they both believed in that. So when it's almost like you're going to somebody and saying, help me out, this is what you do. And the people are being like, well, either just lying to him or they're not wanting to help him, which gets him angry. And then he has to write books, you know, the first ever TMZ. Um. By 1920, Houdini was known as one of the most tenacious opponents of spiritualism. In the preface to his book, Miracle Mongers and Their Methods, Houdini wrote, uh, much has been written about the feats of miracle mongers and not a little in the way of explaining them. Chaucer was by no means the first to turn shrewd eyes upon wonder workers and show the clay feet of these popular idols. And since his time, Innumerable marvels held to the supernatural have been exposed for the tricks they were. Yet today, if a mystifer lack of ingenuity to invent a new and startling stunt, he can safely fall back upon a trick that has been in the favorite of press agents the world over in all ages. You know what I mean? So one after another, Houdini publicly exposed the tricksters and their trickery, divulging their secrets during the final minutes of each of his shows. He offered $5,000 rewards to anyone who can put over anything in so-called psychic phenomena that cannot, that I cannot detect. So he was putting his money where his mouth, mouth is. He's ruffling a lot of feathers. So not only do you have the people that really, um, 
really know this magic stuff stuff you have the darker people which are the the greedy people doing it just for money and those people you mess with those people's money that's when you get laced up and put in a coffin you know what i mean he was having two sides of the coin we're not enjoying that guy if you know what i mean he's quite a rebel you know what i mean i never took him to be such a rebel which that's gangster he's going around he you know he's blowing the whistle on people when they're doing crazy stuff well, when you get somebody who's a believer and they uh, end up coming in contact with a fraud, uh, yeah, that, that person gets offended, gets upset. And it's probably not that uncommon. I know with myself as well, not that uncommon for that person to challenge another. Yeah. In another way, I, I used to do that. Um, I would go to uh, psychic fairs or festivals and... There might be someone who is doing readings is what they would call them. Yeah. And I would sit down and they'd say, okay, um, yada, yada. They'd start asking me questions mm-hmm. and I'd say, you tell me. Or they say, uh, I'd only answer a yes or a no. Like you have someone, um, out as someone, an old person who passed with you. Okay. But I wouldn't give information. And you could catch some of them fishing. Yeah. They, they'd be waiting for you to say, oh, sounds like my mother. And then they'd suddenly say, oh, yes, your mother's with you. Uh, these people are fishing for information. And I didn't do it a lot, but I'd go in sometimes and then walk out and go, eh, nope. They spent their whole time fishing. If I didn't give them anything, they couldn't give me anything. Yeah. And uh, they didn't like me. But they also knew nothing about me. So I just kind of walked away going, nope, another fake. That's it. I am a true believer. And I don't like fakes because it can help people. Uh, Working with spirit, nosing spirit can be very helpful, can be good. But you destroy that when you're a fake. And you lead people down a a false path. Yeah. And if you're exposed, then people tend to say, well, it's all fake, which is not all fake. Mm. So I can agree with Houdini uh, to, a, to a certain point. But yeah, he had to have gotten burned really bad to start writing books and going after everybody like that. Very sensitive guy, I think. With money, you, a sensitive person with money is a dangerous thing. You know? Uh, Houdini also traveled uh, from town to town exposing frauds and demonstrating the tricks they used. His opening speech was titled, Can the Dead Speak to the Living? Question mark. Uh, the first step towards the lunatic asylum is the Ouija board. Well, hey, we agree with that. Uh, anyone who claims to be able to talk with the dead is either a self-deluded person or a cheat. Can the dead speak to the living? I say they do not. I am particularly well qualified to discuss this subject as I have always been interested in the spiritualistic and the psychic phenomena. I have personally known most of the leading spiritualists of the last quarter of a century. I wonder what they would say about him going out and saying these things if he's known all these leading. I know he's bagging them up. I wonder if there was ones he didn't bag up. If there, you know, he went after. He's kind of saying that they're all foul, though, right? 
Well, it's also the thing is you get the person who is it's easy or easier to yeah. disprove something. You get the person where a table vibrates and then, uh, you know, they got their legs under it and they're shaking it. You get, you know, the person where this ghostly figure appears and there's a smoke machine with lights hidden. I mean, that is easier to dispel than the person who sits across from you. Yeah. You, you say nothing. And they tell they tell you everything about that person and spirit that's with you. Yeah. So he could have also have picked his targets carefully among the people who, when they were giving communication, use props, use phenomenon happening that he could easily pull apart as opposed to someone who just sat there. He kept his mouth shut and gave him a message. Yeah. Because he can't disprove that, particularly if they came across uh, something that uh, or would be able to deliver a message they had no way of knowing. Yeah. So he, I think he may have picked his targets, uh, the famous people that were really pushing it, and they were using props, and they were using uh, different phenomenon around them that he could easily look into and easily disprove. Yeah. Yeah, I believe he's, he is quoted here saying he's not opposed to spiritualism, but only the frauds who perverted it for monetary gain, which I think we all can stand behind. You know what I mean? Oh, I, I, I agree with that 100%. Some historical evidence suggests that Houdini believed in the possibility that the departed can contact the living. So there you have it. And it's very angry, very, very, very... Uh, very uh, something upsetting. It's a very upsetting thing to when you see a fraud doing something because not only are they exploiting the whole deal and the people that are trying to believe and they're they're, they're exploiting everything. You know, they're making it look bad for everybody across the board. Um, anybody that does any of that fraud shit is bad news. Stay away. Stay away from frauds, folks. Um, now, Houdini once said that if anyone could break the shackles of death, he would. The first 10 years after his death, his widow Bess held a seance in the graveside on the anniversary of his passing, which I believe he died on Halloween. She once claimed to have made contact with Houdini's spirit, but later recanted the story. His devotees carried on the annual seance for decades. Yeah, there was like a magic house or something like that. Um where they all gathered to um, the magic castle. That's what it is. The magic castle. Um, they'd gather there to do the seance every year on Halloween, which was his birthday. I mean, not his birthday, the day he died. MF doom, all caps died on Halloween too. Whenever somebody dies on Halloween, I think of suicide immediately because who else dies on Halloween? You know what I mean? What a day. You either got that unlucky day or lucky, whether what you believe or uh, you kind of planned it, you know what I mean? But that's just my take. Um, you know, the mysterious Hattie, let's get back to him. History records reveal versions, several versions of the events surrounding the death of Harry Houdini. One magic, uh, magic expert recorded seven different versions of Houdini's death. On October 22nd, 1926, uh, at the Princess Theater in Montreal, Houdini invited some college students to join him backstage. Proud of his muscular physique, Houdini often challenged others to punch him in the stomach. This is the one that I'm mostly known for, uh, like I, th- that I'm known for him, how he died, supposedly. Some accounts say uh, only that it was one student 
that took the Houdini's challenge. And the others indicate that the student was a McGill University boxing star. One account names Jay Gordon Whitehead, an amateur boxer, as the person who punched Houdini and relates that the Houdini sustained not one, but three blows from Whitehead. Whitehead account, uh, sta- Whitehead account states that the boxer punched Houdini as he was rising from sitting on the couch. Other uh, reports on, on that, that Houdini was prepared to take the punch. I tell you, I feel like he probably got him when he was getting up from the couch because you know how people people are weirdos and they, they're so quick to jump into it. Like this boxer probably thought, oh, I'm going to get him. I'm going to be the guy that gets him. I'm going to get him early and fucking killed the guy. You know what I mean? Oh, yeah, I agree. I mean, now they're trying to make a name, so they want to drop the guy. It's uh, so I so that that dude punching who did in the stomach before he was fully aware is something that I almost feel like is a reality, uh, especially you know, you know that dude had some came back, was partying maybe have a couple of drinks with him, you know had some good conversation maybe Houdini was a little cocky and he said I'm going to show this dude what's up, and uh, blasted the life out of him. You know what I mean? Well, I also. Yeah, he could have been wanting to make a name for himself as a boxer, the man who who dropped Houdini. You got that? He could get his own show, traveling in the circus, he knocking out cows in front of an audience. Um, accounts also vary about the outcome. The punch either aggravated a pre-existing appendix problem or caused Houdini's appendix to rupture. Whatever the details, the incident resulted in a peritonitis caused by a ruptured appendix, which led to Houdini's death. Woo! Never a good deal. You know what I mean? Um, Houdini suffered through through four more performances in Montreal. Uh, on October 24th, he opened at the at Detroit's Garrick Theater. He completed a series of vanishing acts. One, la- one last one where he made a woman disappear from the stage and a flowering bush appear in her place. Moments later, the woman shouted, Here I am! as she ran down the aisle and back to the theater. Houdini began his next trick. The pain from his midsection caused him to turn aside. He completed the first act with the help of his assistants. As the curtain fell, Houdini collapsed and was taken to the dressing room. Although he had 104 fever, he was determined to finish the two-and-a-half-hour show. After the show, Houdini was rushed to Grace Hospital, Detroit, Doctors removed his appendix, but the infection had already poisoned his system. So he went septic. That's no good. Um, very crazy stuff. You know, it kind of reminds me of, like, uh, Tiny Tim was having issues. And I know, like, his last performance was, like, it's, like caught on tape. And uh, he, he wasn't supposed to be performing because he had heart issues. And I guess he's real clammy and horrifyingly working his way through the set. <laughs> and then I think like right after he got off the stage, he collapsed and died. But there, that happened. There was another dude. There's a British comedian, uh, for maybe the seventies who died on stage on TV. And he was kind of a goofball comedian. So when he fell and laid dead, everybody was like clapping and laughing and quite a way to go out, quite a way to leave the party. You know what I mean? Um, you know, who did, you know, as Houdini began his next trick, he realized he couldn't do it because he was already dead. You know what I mean? 
<laughs> Poor guy. Um, you know, here again, here again, details of Houdini's final hour, hours vary from one account to the next. Most accounts say that the magician died on October 31st, uh, Halloween, in the arms of his wife. Yet at least one account relates that he whispered to his brother Theo, who is also an illusionist, I'm tired of fighting. Guess this is going to get me. Then glancing at his wife, Houdini closed his eyes and died. That's deep. What, what's your take on that? That people actually being able to say, put together sentence, know they're dead. Know they're, they're going to be dead in two seconds and then putting together something deep like that. You think that, that you could be that close? You know, I almost feel like when you're, when you're, when you're, I don't know, when you're that close to death, I don't think you're, I don't know, I don't, like that was like, boom, like he's just like, peace. I'll see you guys, you guys see on the other side, dead. You know what I mean? Like that close instead of like a talk three year, three, you know, hours later or whatever they leave. You know what I mean? You have, you, I think you did actually, you encountered a, like a quick, like you were talking to somebody right before a passing, right? Um, I did do that. And that person was, uh, there were other family members in the room and, that person was saying goodbye and kind of joking with everybody. I can remember them winking and then just kind of putting their head back and the uh, equipment they were, they were hooked up to after he said all his goodbyes and they gave the wink, the equipment, the hot monitor and everything else. um, Everything just stopped. Yeah. You know, we're going to, yeah. There was also the case where I went to visit. My father was sick in the hospital, and we had a we had a talk, and uh, that's where he said, "I'm not um, not going to get out of this one, am I?" And we had a talk about his life, and it was okay to let go. I left the hospital, get home, and there's a phone call saying the father passed. Yeah, he stopped fighting. He accepted it and just went, and he could see it coming. Yeah. You can see the darkness in Houdini's eyes. Anybody go that that man's seen darkness. You look at this look then and go look at a picture of Houdini. That man's seen some darkness in his days. I can tell just by looking at it. And we're gonna dive into a couple of his big tricks, his big big illusions that he's known for. Um, first up, uh, Chinese water torture. The Chinese water torture cell. I think we our government ended up using that later in life. Um, in nineteen twelve the vast number of imitators prompted Houdini to replace his milk can act with the Chinese water torture cell. I know that the, that name is a lot more threatening than the milk can. You know what I mean? You want to do the milk can or you want to do the Chinese water torture cell. I'm going to take the milk can actually personally, but uh, maybe hopefully just kick it again around. But in this escape, Houdini's feet would be locked in stocks and he would be lowered upside down into a tank filled with water. The mahogany and metal cell featured a glass front through which audiences could clearly see Houdini. The stocks would be locked to the top of the cell, and a certain a curtain would conceal his escape. In the earliest version of the torture cell, a metal cage was lowered into the cell, and Houdini was enclosed inside of that. While making the escape more difficult, the cage prevented Houdini from turning. The cage bars also offered protection should the front glass break. The original cell was built in England, where Houdini first performed the escape for an audience of one person as a part of a one-act play, 
called Houdini Upside Down. This was, this was so he could hold the copyright uh, of the effect and have the grounds to sue imitators, which he did, who tried to steal his gimmick. While the escape was advertised as a Chinese water torture cell, or the water torture cell, uh, which is definitely more politically correct nowadays. Um, but this, this would be, uh, Houdini always referred to it as the Upside Down, or the USD. The first public performance of the USD was at the Circus Bush in Berlin on September 21st, 1912. Houdini continued to perform the escape until his death in 1926. Halloween. <clears throat> also, he was very known for the suspended straitjacket escape. One of Houdini's most popular publicity, publicity stunts was to have himself strapped into a regulation straitjacket and suspended by his ankles from a tall building on crane. Houdini would then make his escape in a full view of the assembled crowd. In many cases, Houdini would draw thousands of onlookers who would choke the street and bring city traffic to a halt. Houdini would sometimes ensure press coverage by performing the escape from the office building of a local newspaper. In New York City, Houdini performed the suspended straitjacket escape from a crane being used to build the New York subway. After fleeing his body in the air, he escaped from the straitjacket starting from where he was hoisted up in the air by the crane to when the straitjacket was completely off. It took him two minutes and 37 seconds. There is film footage of Houdini performing the escape in the Library of Congress. After being battered against a building in high winds during one escape, Houdini performed the escape with the visible safety wire on his ankle so that he could, pull the, he could be pulled away from the building if necessary. The idea for the upside-down escape was given to Houdini by a young boy named Randolph Osborne Douglas, born March 31st. 1895, died December 5th, 1956, was never given a single penny for the gimmick. Uh, when the two met at a performance at Sheffield's Empire Theater. I heard the boy actually died the next day after telling Houdini, that Houdini the trick. He mysteriously drowned in a river. Nobody knows what happened. Um, buried, the Buried Alive stunt, very famous one. Houdini performed at least three variations on a buried alive stun escape during his career. The first was near Santa Ana, California in 1915. It almost cost Houdini his life. Houdini was buried without a casket in a pit of earth six feet deep. He became exhausted and panicky trying to dig his way to the surface and called for help. When his hand finally broke the surface, he fell unconscious. He had to be pulled from the grave by his assistants. Houdini, Houdini wrote in his diary that the escape was very dangerous and that the weight of the earth is killing. Yeah, because it's all it, it goes around you and you're kind of stuck. You know, you don't really think of that when you're under there. You know, you probably thought it was going to be more. Uh, I don't know what he was thinking, but uh, he wasn't thinking. Now he thinks. Now he's dead. Houdini's second variation on Buried Alive was an endurance test designed to expose mystical Egyptian performer Raman Bey, who claimed to use supernatural powers to remain in a sealed casket for an hour. Houdini bettered Bey on August 5th, 1926, by remaining in a sealed casket submerged in the swimming pool of a New York Hotel Shelton for one, hour, one and a half hour. 
Houdini claimed he did not use any trickery or supernatural powers to accomplish this feat, just controlled breathing. I guess if he was going to be in something that was closed off with air, you would have a certain amount of air within there. And if you could last... Now, the tricky part is, like, if you have to last to a certain point of time, that's kind of scary. If you're if you're starting to get short breaths and you got another hour, that's kind of, that's some scary stuff, you know what I mean? Um, little, yeah, and also, you got to avoid panicking because then you'll start hyperventilating and you'll use up more oxygen. So, yeah, that that's a tricky one. It's, it's, I like how he, he, he made... He, he, he like... He said that the other dude couldn't do what he did because he he can do it longer. I thought that was kind of a funny aspect of it. It's like, that's, ain't, ain't that kind of like, I don't know. You're proving that it can be done and you can do it longer. It wasn't, spare, it, well, it wasn't anything supernatural, though, he claims. Just controlled breathing. So he's just kind of debunking these people with uh, trickery, you know. I bet a lot of magicians hated him because he was giving, putting, putting them over, you know what I mean? Like letting people know that they're, they're frauds and... Like that dude that that dude that was a magician was a heavy hardcore magician for many years and probably made friends with all the right and dark magician people around the earth. When the, that book came out tearing him apart, I'm sure him and his pals wanted Houdini dead. They probably hired that that boxer to punch him in the guts. Houdini's final uh, buried alive was an elaborate stage escape that was to feature uh, in his full evening show. The stunt would see Houdini escape after being strapped in a straitjacket, sealed in a casket, and then buried in a large tank filled with sand. While there are posters advertising the escape, um, playing off the Bay Challenge, they boasted Egyptian Fakris undone. It is unclear whether Houdini ever performed Buried Alive on stage. The stunt was to be the feature escape of his 1927 season, but Houdini died on October 31st, 1926. The bronze casket Houdini created for the burial, Buried Alive was used to transport Houdini's body from Detroit back to New York following his death on Halloween. Well, I wonder if he faked his death. You know what I mean? Died later, of course, but it possibly could have faked the death. If him saying, "I don't want to," I don't. I'm, I'm tired. I don't want to do it anymore. That could have been the business too, you know. Well, by going after everybody and building a name, um, and I think part of that was ego. He wanted to prove he was better than anybody, so he had to expose everybody. It closes you out, though, when you're in an industry, and even though you're, even though you're pointing out scumbag people or whatever, that's still closing you out of that industry. You know what I mean? Well, he makes a lot of enemies, and he gets very famous. And if he decides he wants to live a normal life, he can't anymore. Houdini says, huh, what normal? The paranormal life? All right, he debunks some spiritualists up in this mother trucker. I know Ray Shaw bring up his blades. He wants 15 seconds with Houdini in a cage. You know what I mean? We're going to get you that for your birthday this year, baby. 15 seconds in a cage. Okay. We're bringing him in. We're bringing him in. We're calling him out. Houdin, we're going to the Magic Castle on Halloween. If they pay for if they pay for our trip, we will. In nineteen in the nineteen twenties, Houdini turned uh, his energies toward debunking self proclaimed psychics and mediums, a pursuit that would inspire and be followed by later day conjurers. 
Houdini's training and magic allowed him to expose frauds who had successfully fooled many scientists and academics. He was a member of a Scientific American committee that offered a cash prize to any medium who could successfully demonstrate supernatural abilities. None were able to do so, and the prize was never collected. The first to be tested was medium George Valentine of Wilkes Bar, Pennsylvania. As his fame as a ghostbuster grew, Houdini took to attending seances in disguise, accompanied by a reporter and a police officer. Possibly the most famous medium who he debunked was Minna Credan, also known as Marjorie. Are you familiar with Marjorie? No, not familiar with that one. Before our time. Houdini chronicled his debunking exploits in his book, The, the Magician Among the Spirits. The, I, wouldn't mind, I didn't know he wrote a book. I wouldn't mind reading a Houdini book. These activities co- uh, caused Houdini the friendship of Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. Doyle, a firm believer in spiritualism, spiritualism during his later years, refused to believe any of Houdini's exposés. Doyle came to believe that Houdini was a powerful spiritualist medium and had performed many of his stunts by means of paranormal abilities and was using these abilities to block those of other mediums that he was debunking. Uh, Conan Doyle wrote a book, The Edge of the Unknown, in 1931, where it dives into this a little more. This, this disagreement led to the two men becoming public antagonists and led Sir Arthur to view Houdini as a dangerous enemy. Before Houdini died, he and his wife agreed that if Houdini found it possible to communicate after death, he would communicate. The message, Rosabelle, believe, would be the secret code which they agreed to use. This was a phrase from a play in which Bess performed. At the time the couple first met, Bess held yearly seances. Uh, I guess when they first met, that's when she was doing it. But uh, now... Bess held yearly, well, not anymore, Bess, Bess is dead, but Bess held yearly seances on Halloween for 10 years after Houdini's death, but Houdini's spirit never appeared. Um, do you think people that go through a life and existence of um, trying to say that that stuff's not real, do you think that they get kind of punished in the afterlife or held back by something like that? I don't know if you'd call it punishment. I think that... Uh... It's like, quite po- it's it's quite possible that Houdini went on and continued on, whether it's reincarnation or whether it's another level on the spirit side. Um, I I don't think it would be punishment. You don't feel like if somebody went through their whole life naysaying it and saying that it wasn't real, that when they when they went there, maybe because they were so against it that they might not be able to kind of come back and see people, like do that seance type deal. That might be more to do with their energy than anything else. Yeah. The energy, the energy that they're putting out and they're basically isolating themselves and that energy on, on the other side uh, will prevent them from contacting anybody on this side. Yeah. But I got some sad news here. Bess, grieving and in need of some attention, horrifying, did stage a false contact, which she later recanted. In 1936, which is always terrible because you destroy the credibility of anything. In 1936, after a last unsuccessful seance on the roof of the Knickerbocker Hotel, she put out the candle that she had kept burning beside a photograph of Houdini since his death. That's a big-ass candle. 
woo, ten, more than 10 years staying. In 1943, Bash said that 10 years is long enough to wait for any man. Like, depends what man you're talking about. Um, the tradition of holding a seance for Houdini continues, held by magicians throughout the world. The official Houdini seance is currently organized by Sidney Hollis Radner, the Houdini aficionado from Holyoke, Massachusetts. Interesting. I didn't know that we had a, a Houdini aficionado. Mr. Sidney Hollis Radner, if you hear this episode, holla at your boys. We want to get you on the show. Maybe Houdini will connect us through Facebook and we'll get you on here that way. Yearly Houdini seances are also conducted in Chicago at the Excalibur nightclub. Nightclubs by necromancer Neil Tobin on behalf of the Chicago Assembly of the Society of American Magicians and the Houdini Museum in Scranton by ma uh, magician Dorothy Dietrich, who previously held them at New York's famous Magic Townhouse with, with such magical notables as Houdini's biographers Walter B. Gibson and Milbourne Christopher uh, Gibson was asked by Bess Houdini to carry on the tradition before he died. Walter passed on the tradition to Dorothy Dietrich. Now, I know there was a magic castle that they did it at. The magic castle, to my understanding, is a famous place where magicians congregate and do tricks. Yeah. Uh, it's not necessarily a spiritual place. It's kind of like a hang, like a lounge for magicians? Yeah. It's, it's pretty, if anybody out there has seen Lord of Illusions, it's where all the magicians gather to like play cards, I assume, and talk shop, you know, do their deal. In 1926, Harry Houdini hired H.P. Lovecraft, the, the, the man, the myth, the legend, uh, and his friend C.M. Eddie Jr. to write an entire book about debunking superstitions, which was, which was to be called The Cancer of Superstition. Woo! Houdini had earlier asked Lovecraft to write an article about astrology for which he paid $75. The article, does, I would love to own that check. I would love to own that receipt. How great would that be from, from Houdini to Lovecraft? I would love to own that receipt. Um, the article does not survive. Lovecraft's detailed synopsis for cancer does survive, as do three chapters of the tr uh, tr treaties written by Eddie Houdini's untimely death derailed the plans as his widow did not wish to pursue the project. That's very, uh, that's interesting stuff. I, I've never, I didn't know that there was that crossover. That's like a weird, that crossover of Houdini and Lovecraft is, that right there should be a short film. Let's make that short film. Let's make a film out of that. Um, Houdini's brother, Theodore Hardin, who returned to performing after Houdini's death, inherited his brother's effects and props. Houdini, the Houdini's will uh, stipulated, his will stipulated that all the effects should be burned and destroyed upon Hardin's death. Hardin sold much of the collection to, to magician and Houdini enthusiast Sidney Hollis Radner from Massachusetts. So, Ray, we could actually probably go visit these Houdini things. You know what I mean? Well, it might be a local Houdini uh, museum, which has these things in it. Yeah, she's she's the Massachusetts person. Or he or she, I don't know. Sydney could be uh, probably a gentleman. During the 1940s, including the water torture cell. That's how, that's how big. Get a picture in that for 20 bucks, right? Radner allowed choice pieces of the collection to, to be displayed at the Houdini Magical Hall of Fame in Niagara Falls, Ontario. 
1995, a fire destroyed the museum. No. While the water torture cell was reported to have been destroyed, its metal frame remained, and the cell was restored by illusion builder John Goggin. Many of the props contained the museum, such as the mirror, handcuffs, Houdini's original packing crate, a milk can, and a straitjacket survived the fire and were auctioned off in 1999 and 2008. Radner archived the bulk of his collection at the Outgaming Museum in Appleton, Wisconsin, but pulled it in 2003 and auctioned it off in Las Vegas on October 30th, 2004, a day before his birthday. Houdini was a formidable collector. He bequeathed his, his holdings on magic and spiritualism to the Library of Congress, which became the basis for a collection in cyberspace. Interesting, interesting. You know, we got a little bit about the death. Harry Houdini died of peritonitis, secondary to a ruptured appendix. Eyewitnesses to uh, an incident at the Princess Theater in Montreal gave rise to speculation. You know, as we talked about before. Yeah, you know, he replied, you know, Houdini was reclining on his couch after his performance, having an art student sketch him when Whitehead came in and asked if it was true that Houdini could take any blow to the stomach. Houdini thought it was uh, a groupie. Houdini replied groggily in the affirmative. In this instant, he was hit three times before Houdini could tighten up his stomach muscles to avoid serious injury. Whitehead reportedly continued hitting Houdini several more times, and Houdini acted as though he were he was he were in some pain. Yeah, I th- like I, I stand by what we said before. I think it was just a almost probably like a dummy character. Some dummy character comes in there. After a show, probably had a couple cocktails, feeling good. You know, Houdini's in there getting this picture done by an artist, thinking, ah, where am I going to put this picture when I get home? And then dude comes in. Houdini probably thought he was putting his hand out to shake his hand. You know what I mean? And then all of a sudden, bop, 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 street fighter, street fighter style. Light him up. You know what I mean? E-Honda style. Lighting Houdini up on the couch. Like machine gun fire. And uh, a couple days later, he's fucking dead. It's tragic. A legend. A legend in the biz. Down. Down for the count. Houdini's funeral was held on November 4th, 1926. You know what I mean? Um, In New York City, with more than 2,000 mourners in attendance, he was interested in the Macfella Cemetery in Queens, New York, with the crest of the Society of American Magicians inscribed on his gravesite. The statuary uh, bust was added to the Excedra in 1927, believed to be the only graven image in a Jewish cemetery anywhere. In 1975, it was knocked over and destroyed, unfortunately. Temporary ones were placed there until 2011 when a group who came to be called the Houdini Commandos from the Houdini Museum in Scranton, Pennsylvania, placed a permanent bust with the permission of Houdini's family in the cemetery. To this day, society holds a broken wand ceremony at the gravesite in November. Uh, November, Houdini's widow, Bess Houdini, uh, died on February 11th, 1943, at age 67 in Needles, California. 
She had expressed a wish to be buried next to him, but instead was entered at the Gates of Heaven Cemetery in Westchester, New York. Uh, Pennsylvania also has a Westchester, so that's as close as they could get her, I guess. Um, Has her Catholic family refused to allow her to be buried in a Jewish cemetery? Even though it's her last wishes, that's kind of crazy. She probably got down with her husband more than her family. Um, Proposed exhumation on March 22nd, 2007. Houdini's great-nephew and grandson of his brother, Theo, George Hardeen, announced that the courts would be asked to allow exhumation of Houdini's body. The purpose was to investigate the possibility of the uh, nephew making more money. I mean, of Houdini being murdered by spiritualists. As suggested in the biography, The Secret Life of Houdini. Interesting. I'd read that book. In the statement given to the Houdini Museum of Scranton, the family of Bess Houdini opposed the application and suggested it was a publicity ploy for the book. The Washington Post stated that the press conference was not orchestrated by the family of Houdini. Instead, the Post reported it was orchestrated by authors Kalush and Sloman, who hired the PR firm Dan Clora's Communications to assist them. So it was a marketing ploy. That sucks. It sucks to drag someone through the, like, fucking disturb somebody for bullshit like that. Um, Because he did a terribly sagging book sales. In 2008, it was revealed the parties involved never filed legal papers to perform an exhumation. So they didn't want to go too deep on him, which is nice. Nobody wants to go too deep. Um, Let's roll through here real quick. You know. We got some handcuff tricks. You know, magicians began to demonstrate handcuff acts as early as the 1890s. According to New Ideas Magic published in 1902, the secret to a successful handcuff act is having multiple sets of keys. Having the full set of 45 keys would allow traveling magicians the most success. When entering a new town, the magician would research the handcuffs used by the local police, as well as any special handcuffs and conceal the keys somewhere on his person. Concealing the keys was simple when presenting a normal stage act, as time could often not allow for an exhaustive search. Um, and that Houdini was our boy with the king of handcuffs. During the early years of the 20th century, at the beginning of his career, he would simply conceal the keys in a secret pocket or a bag strapped to his leg. As his skills and popularity grew, Houdini invented the use of a belt-made flexible steel containing special compartments within a double wall. The inner belt ran on a tiny ball bearing that could be revolved by pressure from Houdini's arm. This solved the biggest problem in handcuff work, accessibility. With this belt, Houdini could not have access to any tool he required with the slight, with only the sleight of hand. So that's how he kind of figured that out, which was kind of cool, you know what I mean? Kind of a nice uh, take on that. And also at jail escapes, although handcuffed act rocketed Houdini to fame, what triggered such, such success were the series of jailbreaks, which he accomplished in order to prove himself the elusive American that he claimed to be. He gained the reputation as a prison breaker when playing various towns in the United States. Uh, while in Europe, he visited Scotland Yard and escaped from a pair of regulation handcuffs placed on his wrist by the superintendent himself. He escaped in such a swift and surprising manner that the superintendent was amazed. His files contained hundreds of letters from police chiefs attesting 
that the escapes were real. You know what I mean? Um, you know, in 1904, Houdini presented himself to the chief constable to arrange a private display during the week. However, the commander unexpectedly asked him to try what he could do right then and there. He was marched off to the cell and stripped of his clothes, which were placed in an adjoining cell, which was then triple-locked. His cell was thoroughly searched, and the door triple-locked. At Houdini's request, all the cells in the corridors were also locked, and the iron gates at the foot of the steps were secured with the seven-lever lock. To the surprise of everyone present, Houdini joined them, in the bottom corridor mere five minutes after being locked in. In a short time, he, be- he had gotten out of his cell, opened another cell to retrieve his clothing, unfastened all the remaining cells in the corridor, and burst through the locked iron gate. For this act, he was presented with a certificate signed by the chief of constable as a witness of the amazing event. It's crazy. It's definitely some stuff. Definitely some interesting stuff. Um, but yeah, you, you know, handshake Houdini, he took the key from a clip and escaped. So, uh, he always had a last resort, you know what I mean? Whenever, whenever he would visit the jail cell, test the lock with his keys, you know what I mean? Uh, he would put gum, you know, here we go here. There was, however, the job for hiding the key. One of Houdini's systems was to hide the key in his shaggy hair with a dab of adhesive wax. Another method was to fix the key under his instep using adhesive tape. Sometimes Harry could gum the key beneath the prison bench or even under the lock itself. When pretending to examine it one last time, Houdini also had hollow-heeled slippers that shriveled open uh, by pressing a hidden catch. The hooked key was another gadget used by Houdini, wherein he would simply hook the key to the back of someone's clothing with a faint brush on the back and retrieve it after being examined. Houdini always had a last resort. Once he, th- he thrust his hands through the bars of the cell and shook hands to admit defeat in a sporting fashion. However, the man was a friend of his who was wearing a ring with a spring clip. During the handshake, Houdini, Houdini took the key from the clip and escaped. You know what I mean? In another occasion, his wife rushed to the cell and gave Houdini a long farewell kiss. The key was in Mrs. Houdini's mouth at the start of, at the start and wound up in the husband's at the finish. So definitely some trickery going down. The elephant, we get the elephant one, which is very interesting too. Um, on January 7th, 1918, Houdini performed the Vanishing Elephant Illusion at New York's Hippodrome Theater. And Hippodrome featured the world's largest stage as well as the troop of trained elephants. The illusion called for only a huge cabinet, an elephant, and a team of 12 strong men. Houdini began with a cabinet he described as about 8 feet, eight square feet, 26 inches off the floor. All parts of the cabinets were shown to the audience, and the elephant was walked inside. Once inside the cabinet, the door and the curtains were closed. Once reopened, the cabinet was empty. The elephant had vanished. You know what I mean? Uh, when Houdini, now that was kind of done by when he, when Houdini, when the front curtain and, and opened the back doors, they were faced towards opposite wings. Then Jenny strolled on stage. She had her sugar with Houdini uh, by the footlight. So 
this whole deal is uh, up front the curtains here. Houdini's order. The two doors were closed at the back. After this, the front then slowly but steadily turned straight towards the audience. Filled with five tons of elephant, the illusion required 12 men, 12 men to turn the cabinet, which took up seven to eight minutes. During this time, all Houdini was was open up the front curtains. He didn't have to open up the back doors. Each half of the back door had an oval uh, cut out in the edge so that when closed, they showed a circular opening in the center. The audience saw through the cabinet and out the hole in the back. Apparently, the elephant had vanished. Otherwise, there would have been no unobstructed view. Where did the elephant go? It never left the cabinet. Houdini was simply working in a huge, overly-sized cabinet on the world's largest stage. While the cabinet was being slowly slung forward, uh, by the stage crew, the trainer who had gone into the cabinet with the elephant was moving the elephant to one side. There, a black interior curtain was pulled into place, matching the inside of the cabinet and hiding the elephant where the front curtains were drawn apart. The audience saw an empty cabinet. Nothing could be seen except a circular opening in the back of the cabinet. The light coming in from the opening and the back gave the interior a perspective that minimized the darkness. The front curtain was widely bunched at the side where the elephant was hidden. Fair enough. Fair enough, man. That was some interesting stuff. Did you have, was there any tricks that you were, that really stuck out to you that you liked? Uh, not really. I've heard about most of them and how they're done. Uh, in doing research and during a period of time when I was interested in magic yeah, and, and trying to, trying to figure out what they were doing or learn how they did it. Um, that going back on his death um, and a lot of the controversy, even his wife changing her story about being contacted. Yeah. He made a lot of enemies among the spiritualists, among musicians, uh, magicians for exposing, for giving out their tricks and exposing them. I mean, he got to a point where a lot of people hated him. Yeah. And, uh, you know, if, if you're conspiracy minded, and particularly if you take the time that, uh, the time frame of when he died, when he lived and died, you've got to look at, there could have been enough pissed off people so that, you know, they kind of, I don't know, set him up with that boxer. Yeah. That's something up to try and take him down and finally shut him up because they were losing a lot of money and prestige. Right. Both, both in the world of spiritualism and in the world of uh, magicians. Yeah. So he, he made a lot of enemies. Yeah. He also did a needle trick that was very interesting. Where you'd like... He'd put a bunch of needles on thread into his mouth and act swallow them supposedly. Um, but like he'd just kind of catch him in his mouth, you know, and gather him in his mouth, and uh, he'd, he'd ready to dispose of the loose needles and thread for a post inspection mouth. To do this, he would simply take a drink of water after the trick. So he'd let it like pile up in his mouth, kind of fold it, uh, and then he'd take a take a swig and inject the needles uh, and thread into the glass. The weight of the needles would actually would naturally propel them to the bottom of the glass where they could not be immediately seen. Uh, the glass was then promptly taken by the assistant, so no special glass was needed. 
and also perform a variation of this trick by using razor blades. This trick was performed in almost the same manner as the needle trick. However, instead of actually placing the false set of razor blades in his mouth, Houdini would simply show the blades on a folded handkerchief that contained pre-threaded blades hidden inside one of the folds. When placing the blades onto his tongue, he would take a pre-threaded blades from the fold instead of using the actual loose blades. In this way, there was no need to dispose of the loose razor blades uh, for a post-trick mouth inspection, as they would be hidden within the folds of the handkerchief that they uh, have been removed from the stage by an assistant. Now, a lot of trickery, a lot of tricky. You know what I mean? He's got the radio illusion. Houdini's career moved into the radio age. He incorporated this new technology into his act. To perform his radio illusion, Houdini would begin by displaying an oversized version of a radio cabinet, roughly six feet wide and proportionately high and deep, equipped with oversized dials. The cabinet stood on high legs, skirted with a black cloth. Houdini would raise the cloth to show the audience that nothing was amiss. He then had assistants lower the front and back of the oversized radio, showing there to be no other sides except a few wires and tubes. Uh, mimicking the actual inside of a radio, who he would then turn the dial on the radio, causing music and to emanate from the giant radio. Suddenly, the cabinet would open and a girl would appear from within. Now, the secret of this trick was the table itself, which contained uh, what magicians call a bellows top consisting of two thin slabs with several inches of cloth folded in between the edges. So the lower top can be set down on a specific distance. In this case, it was let down less than the depth of the cloth that skirted the table. The girl was initially hidden inside the cabinet as Houdini demonstrated that nothing was beneath the cloth. As he moved on to demonstrate the inside of the radio cabinet, the girl would simply lower herself through the trap door into the bottom area she remained hidden due to the cloth at the bottom. As the radio cabinet was once again closed and the music began, the girl would come back into the cabinet through the same trap door where she would make her magical appearance. It's crazy. It's definitely some interesting stuff here. You know what I mean? Got the metamorphosis. Got the old metamorphosis up in here too. When Houdini and uh, Bessie, his wife, went on the road in good old 1884, they featured an illusion called metamorphosis. While other magicians performed this illusion, it was use of both man and woman that made it so successful. Uh, it was this trick that gained Houdini's their first big tour with the Helsh Welsh Brothers Circus. In this trick, Houdini hands would be fastened behind his back as he was placed inside a large bag with knotted, uh, in which was knotted closed. He was then placed inside a large box, which was locked and strapped closed. The box is then placed inside a cabinet. Mrs. Houdini would then draw the curtain closed and clap three times. At the third clap, Houdini himself would draw open the curtain, and Mrs. Houdini would be gone. When the box is opened, Mrs. Houdini is found inside the bag with the knots and seals unbroken and her hands secured in exactly the same way as her husband's. Uh... I guess, you know, the answer to this trick begins with the binding of Houdini's wrists. He was an expert at freeing himself from the ropes and ties, especially those in which the knots could be slipped and tightened later. He would simply free himself from the ropes and the bags and being raised above his head. The audience could not see this, and his hands were purposefully bound behind his back. 
The rope used to secure the sack itself ran through the series of metal eyelets around the upper edge of the bag, so the rope would be both inside and outside of the bag. Houdini merely needed to pull on the rope from the inside of the bag to open the sack. The box or trunk was oversized, allowing for more freedom of movement. It had a rear panel opening inward with the release of the inside. Having gotten himself free from both the rope and the sack, Houdini would wait for the curtain to drop. As the curtain falls, he simply uses the release and trap panel to exit the box. Contrary to the audience's assumption, it was Houdini himself who was doing the clapping as Bessie got inside the box through the open back panel. Harry would then appear from behind the curtain. When Harry opened the curtain, Bessie was already inside the box. Once inside, she closed the panel, slid into the wrist restraints, left slack by Harry, and pulled the sack over her. Inside the sack, she would use the inner loop system to pull the knot tight at the top of the bag. All of this work was performed as Harry went through the motions of unlocking the box. Yeah, like I said, with the blade thing and the time thing, it's everything everything has to be perfect. You know what I mean? Time-wise, you know, the, these, the blade work, all that crazy stuff. Definitely crazy. Uh, walking through a brick wall. That was an interesting one. On May 4th, 1914, a London magician named Sidney Joslin signed an agreement giving Houdini the rights to perform a trick of walking through a steel wall. The trick begins with the audience looking at the nine-foot-high brick wall built across the stage uh, from front to back so that the audience can see both sides. The floor is covered with two large cloths. Each single piece, a six-foot screen, is placed around the performer and takes up not more than a third of the stage. Another screen of the same size is placed on the other side of the wall. Houdini raises his hands and shouts to the audience, Here I am. With that, the screen is removed and Houdini is gone. The screen on the other side of the wall is removed, revealing Houdini. While Houdini used the existence of the long rug beneath the wall to prove that he was not using trap doors, in fact, the cloth or rug was essential to the trick. The cloth needed to be cut exactly to the size, long enough for both sides so that the inspection committee could stand on the cloth itself and not notice a trap beneath. Uh, it had been on stage, or the committee would see the trap door beneath. Beneath the rug, Houdini utilized one long trap door and went from one side of the wall to the other. The trap was hinged in two sections, dropping downward at the center. When lowered, they formed a V-shape, just large enough for Houdini to wiggle through. Once hidden by the first screen, he gave a signal for the trap to be lowered, slipped slip beneath the wall, and appeared on the other side. While he traveled below the wall, the audience's attention was often focused on examining the wall, top of the wall, counting the bricks or watching the movement of the bricks. It's a lot of look over here while we're doing this type stuff, you know. We don't want to give away too many of Houdini's secrets. We don't want to upset anybody. Nothing but respect. Nothing but the respect to the Houdin man. Um, but yeah, you know, is there anything you'd like to say about the Houdin man? Um, he obviously was a great magician and pulling the gags and pulling the stunts. Um, it's not only that you have you have crafted that stunt; it's being able to pull it off so that people don't catch you. Yeah, and give a good show at the same time. If you're looking at the spiritualism, 
uh, I can understand as a believer, he would be upset with fakes and would go after them. Yes. I don't necessary to go after him, but I think that he was probably hurt, uh, disappointed, and made it uh, part of his life's journey to disprove these fakes that were taking advantage of people for money. Yeah, And I can understand that as as a believer himself, I can understand him wanting to do that. Yeah, I agree. He has to be a spiritual guy, even if he doesn't admit it or doesn't want to push it, because you can't get, you know, it's all trickery in a way, you know, so you can't really, when you're a trickster yourself, you can't really get mad at, you can't really get mad at somebody else for doing tricks, but I think there was a lot deep, there was more deeper issues there. Um, Probably had a lot to do with attitudes and ego, you know what I mean? Um, and that's probably what kind of made him go, you know what? You think you're so great and he's so magnificent and, you know, but the, you know, there's a weird spiritual thing that comes into it where you see people that are too, when there's people that are really spiritual and they, they, they have a, they have a connection to the other side. There'll always be people that'll kind of follow them. You know what I mean? That'll go, Hey, Oh, they're the real deal. So I assume when you're, in that world and you're looking at it and you're seeing all these people just, you know, blindly follow somebody and worship them or whatever, you're probably going to be like, no, 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 this is how it is. This is the reality of the situation. And I agree with you 110%. I think he's a dude that went inside, went inside the club, seen around a little bit, didn't like what he's seen, came out and started blowing the whistle. Um, on what he's seeing now that kills you in that industry because there's so many in there that much like any kind of industry, if you go in there and even though you're pointing your finger and whistle blowing and saying, Hey, that's not cool. What he's doing is not cool. Yeah. People are going to now pay attention to it and they're going to probably get reprimanded for it. But him or her and all the people they associate with are now going to be out for your throat you know what I mean? And it's not going to, at one time he may have thought that he had good standing within that magical group. You know what I mean? Because he was so famous, you know what I mean? And then you start saying things people don't want to hear or don't want other people hear. And you see how quickly you get kind of hushed up a little bit, you know what I mean? And uh, yeah, I do think, I do think it was, it, it, there, there was probably some foul play and that it's either a freak accident of like what we said with the dude just being maybe have a couple cocktails in him and want to get that upper hand on Houdini to be able to say, hey, man, I hurt Houdini. Um, the fact that he hit him so much, that's a little questionable. Then I could almost go into the sense of a hit, almost like a hit. Um, but I don't know. It's interesting. I definitely I vibe with you that he was a dude. He was a. I, I think it's kind of funny how like the the trickster like he he's like he is what he is. He's not saying that he the soup that 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 God or the devil are giving him these powers. You know what I mean? They're tricks. You know what I mean? He's like we're we're a show. We're here. To, we're performers. We're we're doing a we're doing you a service. You know what I mean? Um, don't fall too deep into it. You know what I mean? He's one of those dudes. Um, do you think that there is actual negative energy in dark arts in magic, in the world of magic? What's your take on that? I don't know. The way the, ma- the magic is now, I think that it is probably more just well-crafted 
well-crafted stunts. Yeah. Um, I don't really think that there's much dark arts in it. Mm. Um, it's all Hollywood. It's all Vegas. Uh, it's all camera angles. It's all uh, well-put-together stunts. Yeah. Do you get any human mind conjuring type evil out of something like that? Um, and most of the magic that you see, I'd say no. Yeah. He went after the Ouija board people I've seen. Yeah, I really think that somewhere he got burned. Somewhere, yeah. somewhere he got a major disappointment. Or it could be, you might add in that he was searching. He was a believer who was searching. And he kept on going, uh, hoping that, you know, he'd hit that one where he couldn't prove they were fake. Yeah. That, that's a possibility, too. I agree with that. Yeah. I'm with you. I think that he, he's almost like a, he's a whistleblower. He's a legitimate whistleblower. One of the greatest magicians and illusionist of all time. Uh, whistleblower extraordinaire. Um, I do want to read one of these books. I didn't know that he wrote books, but I do. I'm very curious. I'm sure if it's reading those books, you get a better idea of his intentions and um, where that, where the where the fight in him comes from. You know what I mean? Well, folks, Ray's got one more thing to say to you. Okay, I will say, and this may sound a little like Houdini. Beware of the fakes. Yes. Um, but also keep in mind, there are the real people out there. The real deal. Yeah. And wade through all of the fakes. Uh, be, ske- be a skeptical believer. Uh, th- this may sound kind of weird for someone who uh, is a medium and does a lot of spiritual work, but I'm a skeptical believer. I'm skeptical of the human aspect of it. People need attention. Uh, people want money. People want fame. People want fortune. I'm skeptical of that. Yeah. The fact that we do have a connection with spirit and that we can communicate and there's much more to the world around us and we're, we're connected to it. Yes, I'm a definite believer in that. But, uh, yeah, w- watch out for the magicians and the tricksters out there. They're still around. They're still doing their thing. But don't let that tune you off to your path of developing your own uh, spiritual nature and abilities. Yeah. Couldn't have said any better myself. Um, that was a, a great, uh, great journey into the paranormal life of Harry Houdini. If you like this episode, check out the paranormal life of the Warrens we did in season one, and check out all the shows on all the seasons of the Ghost. And uh, we'll catch you all next week on another episode of Mostly Ghostly. Ghostly. <laughs>